1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Claire Jean Kim to discuss her new book, Asian Americans in an Anti Black World, published by Cambridge University Press in 2023. Where do Asian Americans fit in the U.S. racial order? How do we understand anti-Asian racism in relation to structural anti-Blackness? Are Asian Americans subordinated comparably to Black people or permitted adjacency to whiteness? For Dr. Kim, the police murder of George Floyd and the surge in anti-Asian hate during the COVID-19 pandemic make these questions urgent and the answers may alter the U.S. racial order. Dr. Kim argues that understanding U.S. racial dynamics requires careful analysis of two forces, anti-Blackness and white supremacy. Dr. Kim's meticulously researched book treats white supremacy and anti-Blackness as, quote, kinetic forces or energy flows that have shaped and been shaped by the structural regimes of slavery, colonialism, capitalism, settler colonialism, and empire across the globe, close quote. White supremacy lifts up one group as it pushes down all others. Anti-blackness, quote, abjects blackness and elevates not blackness, close quote. Based on her detailed analysis of law, history, and politics, Dr. Kim demonstrates how Asian Americans are, quote, dynamically constituted as not white, but above all, not black. And that not blackness is, quote, vital, a vital form of property in an anti-Black world, close quote. The construction of Asian Americans as not white, but above all, not Black, has determined their positionality for nearly two centuries. Asian Americans are dynamically positioned and, quote, weaponized by the U.S. state as it seeks to preserve structural anti-Blackness. Close quote. How Asian Americans choose to respond to their not black status will help to define racial politics in the United States. Can Asian Americanness be reimagined as a force that quote stabilizes? Sorry, destabilizes rather than stabilizes an anti black world. Dr. Claire Jean Kim is a professor of political science and Asian American studies at the University of California Irvine, where she teaches classes on race. Politics and Human Animal Studies. She's the author of two previous award winning books Bitter Fruit, The Politics of Black Korean Conflict in New York City from Yale University Press in 2000, and Dangerous Crossings Race, Species, and Nature in a Multicultural Age from Cambridge in 2015. I am delighted to welcome her to the New Books Network.
1: Thank you so much, Susan. It's such a pleasure to be here.
2: I loved this book. You already know that from my emails. Um, Let's start by talking a little bit about the field of, of sort of studying Asian Americans and studying race. So I teach on the East Coast of the U.S. and my students have learned very little about Asian American history. Few have heard of the Chinese Exclusion Act. They're unaware of the contributions Chinese workers made in the building of the railroads. Most of them are really surprised to see Chinese people on maps of lynching. They're puzzled to find anti-Chinese rhetoric in uh, a defense of black civil rights in Plessy v. Ferguson. It, they can articulate that Asian Americans suffer discrimination, but they they generally see it as qualitatively different than anti-blackness. And And what I love about your book is the way that you... You educate the reader on how law and politics shaped racial identity for Asian Americans, and any reader, uh, any reader, would become really well versed in the many ways in which full equality has been withheld from Asian Americans, and and the ways in which um, people, especially the Chinese, were treated as inferiors or outsiders. But but. You also reveal how those narratives of discrimination are incomplete without attention to anti-Blackness. And you're very candid about, about your own scholarship and how you worked out those ideas over time. So I, I'd like to sort of start with your own scholarship. You, you started uh, with an article about the U.S. racial order and how it was constructed uh, using the sort of two-dimensional plane of, of insider-outsider and uh, superiority, inferiority. Can can you just explain a little bit about this sort of relational thinking and then how your work over time led you to this book?
1: Sure thing. So that was uh, what you're referring to is the article from 1999 entitled The Racial Triangulation of Asian Americans. And there what I was interested in talking about was how in some way Asian-Americans seem to be positioned by whites in between whites and black people. But at the same time, their foreignness was very emphasized, right? Their outsider status. So um, I was trying to bring those two ideas together with this sort of geometric shape of the triangle and the two two axes, as you were talking about. So the relational aspect there was to say, we have to look at Asian-American racialization In relation to how Black people are racialized. So that idea I have not given up on, right? I I obviously continue that idea in the current book. What's changed, um, and the, the current book is very much a revisiting of that article and that argument because it turned out to be somewhat popular and, and I've over the years felt that it was either that it was being misread or that I, the articles written so as to be misread, that it was somehow misleading or I had gotten something wrong because over the years I started to think as I learned about anti-Blackness through Black Studies Scholarship, that I missed something very important in that original model because I posited that Black people were treated, although as inferiors, also as insiders in the American polity. And I based that on the idea that after the Civil War, Um, You know, if you look at the postbellum amendments, constitutional amendments, they seem to bring black people into the polity, right? The 14th Amendment, for example, at least nominally. And so that's what I was going on, of course, over time through my own reading, especially, again, through Black Studies Scholarship, I realized that was on paper only. And for clear ideological reasons, that was on paper only. So, um, and I started to understand the idea of anti-Blackness as a structural feature of society from prior to the founding of the nation till today. So then I realized, you know, that racial triangulation model needed to be revisited. And that's really what gave birth to this latest book.
2: Now, you're you're a political scientist, but this book is you know, kind of rigorous historical research, legal research. Um, how did you do the research for this book? Were you sitting in archives, or were you accessing documents remotely? And 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 as did you find going into the book that you had ideas that were then changed based on the things that you were were finding um, along the way. The research for the book was
1: really interesting, and you mentioned I'm a political scientist. I don't always admit to that, depending. On, <laughs> Neither do I, Claire.
2: Depending
1: on which circles I'm in, but um, I, to begin with, I don't see the study of politics as a science. So I'll just leave that there. But uh, the work is interdisciplinary, completely interdisciplinary, and intentionally so. The people that I read and cite. Are primarily race study scholars from various fields and um, ethnic studies and elsewhere, and uh, the book is interdisciplinary in methodology, right, and theoretical orientation in every way. In terms of the research, I mean, you ask an interesting question because I had this idea that I, if I was going to do credible research, historical research, I needed to be sort of covered with dust from the archives, right? (laughs) What I found, and it was to my relief, but also, you know, um, somewhat to my chagrin also, was that most of the stuff I needed really is available online. Since I wrote my first book 23 years ago, the amount of material that has been put online and is now available to researchers is phenomenal. And you're nodding like you know exactly what I'm talking about.
2: <laughs> it's, it is disappointing because there is this sort of feeling of opening the box and then the leather and the smell. But it is also remarkable to have several screens up with all of these documents and then be able to, you know, cut and paste and take pictures of them uh, without having to travel halfway across the country.
1: Yes, it gives you the ability to access more material, ultimately. Um, so, for example, I, can fa- I found um, pamphlets, anti-Chinese pamphlets written in the 1870s about how the Chinese worker was a rice eater instead of a meat eater. Um, I found um, congressional debates on lynching from the Senate floor. I found um, camp, internment camp newspaper issues. I found um, photos of blackface performances that had been done in the internment camps. I mean, the the, it's a treasure trove online. So I was able to do the historical research online pretty much, and then um, a great deal of secondary source secondary research as well. And um, what I was really looking for in terms of doing the research was the first two books that I wrote relied primarily upon interview material, personal interviews, and I've always been interested in uh, analyses, discursive analyses, right, of texts. And here, instead of using interviews, I used um, historical materials as texts, whether it was a particular sketch, right, by Thomas Nast, the f- famous sketch artist or from the 1800s, or whether it was um, a congressional debate. Right? I looked at those as texts and I subjected those to analyses. And so the reader will find a lot of excerpts, a few images uh, re- described, I don't include them in the book, but um, you know you can reference them online. And then a lot of uh, excerpts from different kinds of written materials, because I, I think the answer to how race is coded in this society and ultimately globally, can be found in the language itself, right? In in the details of the language. And so it requires that kind of close study.
2: It's funny because uh, I know some of the images that you're describing, and then I don't know others. And I found myself looking up a few things and thinking, oh, it'd be great to have all these pictures. And then I realized, no, actually what she's doing is she is describing the cartoon as text and she's, she's translating it into words, which is, is an incredibly difficult thing to do. So uh, congratulations on doing that successfully. And because there is so much on the web, it really does make it possible that if you wanna see what you're talking about, you can, you can just quickly, quickly find it given what you've, you've written there. Um, the book's divided into three different parts. The first one is on exclusion and belonging, and it focuses more on Chinese immigrants from eighteen fifty to nineteen forty. There's kind of an overlap between the three, but you you try to focus it on these different um, groups. and and there you're you're telling three different stories, the Chinese wage laborers in California. Uh, Chinese contract laborers in the U.S. South, and also Chinese indentured labor in Cuba, which I knew very little about, and I really, really appreciated that part of, of the book. In this section, you're really trying to show us how it is that these early Chinese laborers were the sort of subjects and of, of the construction of the sort of the original, um, I think you call them the original Asian figures. Can, can you talk a little bit about that, about what what is it about these workers that allows for this con- construction and, and what does that construction look like? So one of the
1: things to just to take one step back for a moment to the issue of how the book is structured. So you mentioned it's in three parts. So instead of being broken down into normal academic book chapters, which are maybe 20, 25 pages. Each part of the three has maybe 16 subsections. And it's a kind of a strange way to write a book. It's the first time I've done that. It turns out that's how I, it had to be written in my mind. And the reason is I'm trying to find a way to interweave stories about what was happening with Black people and the Black struggle at the same time as I'm interweaving these stories about Asian immigrants and what's happening with them. And if you put things, um, you know, one chapter after another, you can't get that interweaving effect that you can if you do short sections on um, different groups. So one will notice, for example, in the first section, which is about the Chinese, as you mentioned the Chinese don't enter the picture until several sections into the book, right? So first I want to just lay a very schematic, brief sort of description of slavery. Um, Obviously, very little I can do in those first few pages, but that is the foundation. So I need to talk about that
2: before I bring the Chinese in. And then- I don't want to interrupt you, but I'm going to disagree with you. Actually, I think those are masterfully done and you- do cover so much. I mean, I think that, I don't know how long it took you to write the book, but uh, as a reader, what I appreciated was how in the sections where I know what you're writing about, just how clear, how crisp and how nuanced everything is. So I think in those small chapters, you're able to cover so much the setup ones, but then also within those case chapters, which are extraordinary. So so I don't, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I, I don't want you to say that very little happens in those at all. Like I think actually they are tremendous and I think that they really help catch up readers or will help hopefully help readers catch up who who haven't done as much of this of this reading. They're very accessible at the same time that they're so detailed, which I, I think is a really great accomplishment so. Thank you
1: so much. And and you're reminding me, yes, we're, as a society now, we're sort of, it's more visible now, the struggle over what people are learning in school about Black history in particular and about slavery. And yes, you're reminding me that many readers, if they were brought up in the U.S. system, do not know much about slavery unless they've taken the time to do it on their own. So um, in that sense, it is useful. Um, so the Chinese come in and... The first thing we know about them is they're not slaves, and they're not seen as enslavable, and everything follows from that, right? And they're also not seen as white; they're seen as a degraded, that is non-white cast of workers, and we see that in the different scenarios, those three scenarios you mentioned, and. Um, so I think with the, the reason that it's so important to look at the Chinese first and, um, you know, someone listening to Asian American stories may say, why is it always the Chinese we're talking about? And it's not only that they were temporarily first, it's that that set a sort of template for what came afterwards, because especially in the law, you see that, you know, the, the law recognized Mongolians. Chinese, Asiatics, Orientals, you know some of these terms were interchangeable and then as other Asian groups came in after the Chinese to one extent or another, they were applied to those groups as well. So whatever group came in after the Chinese was always having to distinguish themselves from the Chinese and always partly failing because the law wanted to put them in that category. So in an important way, what happened with the Asian Americans, the template was set with the Chinese. So uh, it bears a lot of uh, close scrutiny there. And the, the Chinese were seen as, you know, riffing off of Lewis Gordon's idea that the two principles structuring the US racial order are be white, but above all, don't be black. The Chinese were seen as not white, but above all, not black. Again, as not enslavable, which put a sort of limit on what kind of violence and coercion could be applied to them. Less so in the Cuba case, because there was the quote-unquote coolies there were certainly subjected to more violence than the Chinese workers who came to the United States. But the Chinese workers who came to the United States were voluntary migrants, Voluntary labors does not mean there is no coercion or violence, but it does mean that they could, for example, leave a particular employer. That was incredibly important, right? Because the Chinese coolie, for example, in Cuba, the slave in the American South could not leave their uh, the slave in the U.S. could not leave the plantation, right? So uh, and choose another plantation to work for. So the Chinese in California, for example, in the eighteen hundreds, had that freedom. And they were seen because they were seen as Asiatics, as even though they weren't white, because they were not black and therefore seen as having, being capable of some kind of freedom. They were seen as uh, Evelyn Duhard has talked about as this transitional figure between the slave and the free laborer, who was, of course, ideally imagined as white.
2: And you say that uh, though seen as outsiders, they're seen as human. And so that uh, even though they will be separated and said you cannot join the nation, you cannot have citizenship, the Chinese are still seen as people, people who come from an ancient country with respectable traditions of literature, etc and and that that functions as part of the template as well that they are they are foreign but foreign with this certain kind of inherent, uh, humanity and tradition.
1: Yeah, I think that's a very important theme in the book and one that's counterintuitive uh, somewhat because when we think of foreignness, especially when we think of it with regard to Asian Americans, we think of it simply as the way that Asians were uh, persecuted or shut out. But in fact, what I try to argue is, as you mentioned, the if the Chinese figure was seen as the subject of the Chinese empire, as belonging to, as you said, a venerable civilization, one that had declined in the American imagination, but was, you know, had once been great, um, and was therefore had a certain form of political belonging, had certain human coordinates, was recognized as part of the family of man, as part of the family of nations, all of this in contradistinction to people from Africa who were seen as described as beasts who lived with other beasts in the jungle um so that whole acknowledgement of humanity meant that there was a certain kind of protection for asian migrants it was incomplete radically incomplete and insufficient we know that because chinese people were lynched they were you know violence was exercised against them in many ways but and they were discriminated against by the law continuously at the same time there was a certain kind of protection built in with the treaty system for example because after the you know mid, mid to late 1800s as the US and China begin to sign treaties together even though that was an incomplete protection for the Chinese immigrant it was some form of protection and we know this because the US courts would sometimes strike down a law intended to discriminate against the Chinese on the grounds that it violated a treaty with China this is why the Chinese exclusion movement got started in the U.S. because the nativists and the white workers who were so frustrated with Chinese worker competition said enough with these treaties, enough with all of these you know, legal efforts that aren't going anywhere to shut them out. We're going to have to get leg- national legislation to shut them out. So uh, what's counterintuitive is we think if the Chinese were literally pushed out of the nation at the same time that Black people were nominally being brought into the nation through the 14th Amendment, then it must be that the Chinese were seen as the lowliest group. And the answer to that is no, that is not the case. um, Black people were being brought in nominally, but these social, political, economic relationships that they had been embedded in, which were you know, across the board, coercive and exploitative remained in place. And what happened was, um, you know, the Chinese people were acknowledged as human and as superior to black people, but it was decided that they should, you know, by some forces within the country that they should be kept out. That was, of course, controversial. There were people within, including employers who wanted to hire their their inexpensive labor. So it was a controversial decision, but, um, but it was not... If they were not excluded because they were seen as the most inferior group.
2: And you note this over and over in the book that a treaty indicates a nation that's making a deal on your behalf. And so though the Chinese workers are in the United States, though they're having uh, have a a degraded status, though they're subject to violence, China claims them as their citizens. And that's another big difference for black Americans who do not have an advocate in a nation elsewhere that has any sort of status to, to create this kind of a treaty. And I, I loved that part and how consistent it is throughout the book. Um, you mentioned, first of all, I loved this part of the book. I thought I knew a lot about these legal cases and statutes in history. It's something I kind of pride myself on, but each section brought me New information. Like sometimes I was like, yes, yes, yes. It's like, Ooh, wait, I've read that line before and I've never read it that way. And I do want to talk about something that you say about methodology. Um, which is you say that reading for anti-blackness in the historical archive requires a new methodology and i want you to unpack that a little because this idea of the importances of silences i found so compelling and uh, so helpful so i want everyone to to share Well, one aspect of this is when you're looking, when you're starting
1: with the um, departure point that the U.S. is a a structurally anti-Black society, what that means is that the society, the economy, the polity and our very psychological, collective psychological lives are built around the central avoidance and phobic hatred of Blackness, right? So, this is drawing upon France Fanon's work and many people in Black studies who have articulated and elaborated this concept, which I am borrowing. And um, if you start from this assumption or this departure point, um, and this, you know, this takes us back to, of course, the 1600s when slavery first started to be codified in the colonies and then was built into the nation with the formation of the Constitution. Um, if you start with that departure point, then the question becomes, how does the United States, um, how do the powerful groups within the United States, how does the state or the government within the United States maintain anti-Blackness in, especially as it claims to be a democracy, and especially as we're moving forward in historical time, and it really needs to start to have to perform that, right, it has to show that it is a racial democracy. Um, and so... One of the thing, one of the implications of that is that you're not going to find in the um, historical archive examples of officials saying, well, this is how we rank different racial groups. (laughs) And we think black people are the absolute lowest. And, you know, um, what you will find is surprisingly frank discussions of how the Chinese have certain virtues that black people lack and black people are similar to beasts in the jungle. So you will find startlingly frank conversations which get less and less frank over time as racial norms start to change. Um, but you won't find a, a sort of delineation of how racial power is actually arranged, right? And there's there's always got to be sort of a plausible deniability. And a lot of what the book is about is how the U.S. state and powerful groups in the U.S. want to um, create this form, th- further this idea that the U.S. is a racial democracy, defend that idea against critics, both at home and abroad, even when it's clear that what's going on at home is structural anti-blackness. So, um, and just as an aside, I agree with the scholars in black studies who argue that structural anti-blackness is a global phenomenon, even though my focus is on the U.S. So, um, So in terms of the methodology one of the things I mentioned in the book is sometimes you see passages, you know, clearly I'm highlighting those passages where they're comparing, for example, Chinese immigrants directly to black people. But sometimes what you're looking for is what is not happening. For example, with the Chinese, um, we know that they were lynched. There were some occasions in California and Wyoming, for example, where um, some Chinese people were lynched, but the reality, the, um, phenomenon of lynching against the Chinese was of an entirely different magnitude and entirely different nature than against um, Black people in the U.S. historically. So we see the positioning of Chinese immigrants in the U.S., but, um, but Often we have to just sort of notice on our own and conclude certain things are not happening to them. They're not being enslaved, right? They're not being lynched in the way that black people are. Um, they're being excluded, but they're, it's still being respected that they are human and attached to an empire over there, overseas. Um, their treaty rights are still being taken seriously. Um, the way that they're talked about is never as entirely non-human or anti-human. There's still always some, some recognition of their humanity. So oftentimes, methodologically, it's like putting together a puzzle. Sometimes we find a piece where it's like direct comparison of groups, but sometimes we're really looking at, How do we see the Chinese experience in light of what's happening to black people? And that's where the interweaving becomes absolutely essential, because if we let's say we take away the anti-blackness story for a moment and just look at how the Chinese immigrant story um, unfolded. Then we see a story of white over Chinese. Right. All the things that white people did to Chinese people, because the persecution was very continuous and very systematic. And so that's the story that Asian workers does usually tells. It's a very compelling story. It's a story with a clear sort of bad guy and a clear good guy. And it's a dyadic story, right? But it's also not the full story.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail.
2: a lot of Americans don't even have that story. So there's just a, and it's a great contribution in the literature to have some of these stories told, but then it's, it's also a problem that it doesn't, as you say, can uh, the through line doesn't continue through and it doesn't broaden out. One of the things that you mentioned earlier in, in the um, discussion that, you know, you have these small chapters and, and I should say, sometimes they're shorter, sometimes they're longer. They, 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 and they function kind of seamlessly. And I never realized occasionally I thought, well, oh, I guess I'll end after this section, but they all connected so beautifully that I really did think of them as all sort of cut from the same cloth, but you do, uh, you know, focus, for example, on a, a legal case like Plessy V Ferguson, or uh, that, that's, you know, very well known or something like people V George Hall, which is less well known to people. And you, you, are throughout this section looking at how Chinese people are using the um, legal structure that's already been there to figure out how to bring themselves closer to whiteness and stay as far from blackness as possible because the law makes blackness such a problem, makes it such a constrained form of of, of citizenship. Um, I don't know if you want to pick one example to just give people a tiny bit of a flavor about how you do that from from this part before we move to part two? Sure. So how about the Gonglum case? We could talk. About okay, so uh,
1: in 1927 the US Supreme Court in Gangnglum V Rice um, decided that a Chinese schoolgirl Chinese American schoolgirl in Mississippi, would um, not be able to go to school with white children that she would have to because she was um, Chinese and therefore not white. She would have to go to school with the so-called colored children, meaning the black children. So um, this case originated um, many years earlier when her father, um, Martha Lum's father, Gong Lum, who was a Chinese immigrant and a store owner in Mississippi, when he um Brought suit against the uh, school board and the um, uh, the election, uh, the school board system, because the idea was that his two little girls who were Chinese American had been going to a white school for many years. And then one day that school just simply closed its doors and said, you can no longer come in because you're Chinese and therefore not white. And the backdrop to this is that in um, a couple decades before that, during the period of Jim Crow, this was all during the period of Jim Crow, the Mississippi legislature had um, passed an amendment saying that um, there would be separate schools for quote unquote white and quote unquote colored children, right? So there would be in public education racial segregation um so the the mississippians had white mississippians had accepted the chinese american girls as white and had allowed them to go to school but then one day something changed and they decided they had to go to the quote-unquote colored school so um gung lum brought a lawsuit and it went up you know up through the levels of the courts and and the supreme court in the end um denied him that's what it looks like on the surface is What some Asian-Americanists talk about, look, the Chinese were segregated too. They were segregated like black children and they fought back valiantly. They didn't win, but they fought back against racial segregation, period. That's a very misleading characterization of what actually happened, because if we start to dig and historically say what was happening around this case, why did the school board shut its doors, school shut its doors that day? What happened after the Supreme Court ruling, then we see a very different picture that puts into uh, perspective how the Chinese were positioned as not white, but above all, not black. How the, So it's a misreading to say they were simply lumped with the black children. Um, The reason the school closed its doors is that it has started to circulate in the area that uh, the concern that because many Chinese men, store owners in the area, were marrying black women or cohabitating with black women because of immigration restrictions on Chinese women, that they were producing Chinese black children who could therefore pass as Chinese and potentially go into white schools as Chinese students. So it was not to keep the Chinese students out, but to keep the Chinese students as potential um, bearers of blackness, physical bearers of black blood. Um, it was to keep that from happening that the school closed its doors. So um, the Chinese community in that area, and this is Rosedale and surrounding areas, got the clear message. If we're going to get anywhere socially, economically, politically, as Chinese people, we need to distance from black people. And so, you know, James Lowen's famous book, The Mississippi Chinese details how this community in this area the Chinese community really made a very concerted, systematic, long-term decision to distance from blackness, to reject their black kin, to move toward whiteness in every way conceivable, so as to improve their position, and they succeeded over decades. Um, and this is all in the you know 20s, 30s, 40s, um, and 50s. And um, After the Supreme Court came down with its decision, the um, Chinese community refused to accept that decision, right? So they knew they couldn't fight any further. It was the Supreme Court after all, but they would not send their children to the black schools. So they sent them to religious schools. They formed a Chinese school. They sent their, their kids back to China for schooling. Anything that they could do to not associate their children with blackness. Um, so if you see it in in that revised light right with more historical information at hand, it really changes our interpretation of what was happening there
0: no
2: and I, I think throughout the book you you just do such a beautiful job of backfilling information that people do not have about how the Chinese were treated uh, the the number of 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 Supreme Court cases that involve uh Chinese asking for particular rights, asking for things that they believe they deserve. That that's actually not a story that gets told very much. I took constitutional law at the University of Chicago. Nobody ever taught any of these cases. Yiqu was just not wasn't in the book. And I've gone back and looked at those books and thought, okay, so that's why is this a sort of an erasure of how much of the civil rights uh, of these early civil rights cases revolved around um, uh, Chinese exclusion from being on juries or, or the extent to which they were given due process. So I think again, I just love how every single time you 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 give us the story and and but you you force it out of the dyad and you you keep it within this sort of larger context. Um. Okay. Part two of the book shifts to uh, to the experience of Japanese immigrants from 1900 to 1940. How is the experience of Japanese immigrants different? How how is it affected by the exclusion of the Chinese from citizenship um, under the Chinese Exclusion Act?
1: The, there's a very clear connection in that the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed in 1882 by the U.S. Congress, and it's really in the aftermath of that that Japanese immigrants started to enter the U.S. And um, to some extent, to, in order to, you know, at least initially the idea was that they would fill some of the same spots that the Chinese did, although that didn't really turn out to be true. The preoccupation of the Chinese immigrants, and above all the Japanese immigrants, and above all the Japanese government, was to distinguish the Japanese immigrants from the Chinese immigrants before them. Right? The Japanese at this time, and I spend some time in the book talking about this. The Japanese government, and the Japanese, um, you know, intellectual class have a very specific racial ideology or set of racial ideologies that they're working with, which involve. Um, seeing Japan as a sort of divine race, as being the leader among all Asian nations, and as being, as a a nation that is pulling abreast with the West. And, you know, one reason that they're, um, they believe they're justified in thinking this is the Russo-Japanese War, right? 1905, which was just sort of Earth-shattering for people <laughs> around the world because this is the first time a non-white power defeats a, you know, supposedly white power. Japan defeating Russia, and it, it shocked a lot of people, and it sort of catapulted Japan to the forefront in terms of being a military power and recognized as an emerging world power. And so, riding on that wave and on the, you know, the power of the um, Meiji Restoration and modernization in Japan, the Japanese are saying to themselves. Um, we are superior to the Chinese. We're superior to the Koreans. You know um, whom we are colonizing, and and other Asian groups, and we are pulling abreast with the West. And so, they're they were very concerned. And the Japanese consulate, and you know other Japanese organizations, which sort of kept tabs on the immigrants who came to the U.S., you know, said to them, "Don't do anything that would." Associate you with the Chinese, right? You know, for instance, dress in American clothes. Don't don't do anything that looks Asian, um, and always be clean living. And you know, don't don't engage in gambling and things that, that the Chinese were notorious for, supposedly. Um, so there was that distinction that they were trying to make. And and you see, you know, there have been some Japanese authors, Azuma and uh, others, who have written about the Japanese migrants to the U.S. during this period having a pioneer ideology, right? They really saw themselves not as sort of a second-class minority citizens coming to the U.S. They saw themselves as pioneers for the Japanese nation and the Japanese empire. And um, they saw themselves as sort of arm-in-arm with the white um, pioneers in the U.S. and as superior to the people of color whom they came across. So... uh, a lot of interesting convergences between their racial ideologies and those of white Americans, um, and you see that you know coming through in a variety of ways. But one of the interesting distinctions you see too in the way that the U.S. Congress talked about the Japanese, because they they cut off Japanese immigration in 1924, as they had the Chinese immigration in 1882, and. It's so interesting to read those discussions because in the U.S. Congress, because they they were at such took such pains to say we don't think the Japanese are inferior, <laughs> right? We we the pains that they did not take with the Chinese. Um, th- they went to great lengths to say, you know, I, I cite a few people who uh, on the floor of the Congress are saying things like the Japanese may even be superior to us. <laughs> They seem more economical, more thrifty, harder working. Um, but we still think they need to be kept apart because, we, you know, they can't assimilate. They're an unassimilable, unassimilable mass in the center of our society. And because of that, we, we really need to keep them out. Uh, but there was so much sort of deference to Japan, at least rhetorically. And that was, again, linked in part to the recognition of Japan as a world power and the fear of alienating japan which the congress did i mean that 1924 act was later named you know as one of the reasons one of the factors that led to world war ii uh uh, led to the bombing of pearl harbor and japan declaring war on the u.s so um so that was one big difference that the u.s and japan had that different kind of relationship The, the japan you know japan surging as an emerging world power this sort of two nations circling each other in the Pacific saying who's going to have dominance over this area. All of that's the backdrop to Japanese immigrants coming into the U.S.
2: Uh, You mentioned World War II and one of the most fascinating parts of part two is your examination of the internment internment of uh, American Japanese and you frame it as a double, the double nature of the internment. And I was wondering if you could just unpack that a little bit, because that's one of the stories that I think actually American school children are now familiar with. I think that's the one thing they know. They know that, you know, American citizens were were rounded up and put in incarcerated in camps and, and, and that they know, but it's very much that narrative of victimization that you talked about earlier and you really complicated in the book.
1: The, By the doubled nature, I mean, again, sort of the doubled nature of all Asian people in the U.S., um, by which I mean the way that they were not white, but above all, not black. So in other words, the way that they were in some ways discriminated against and persecuted and at the same time, given certain kinds of structural advantages. And that sounds very contradictory. And it was. But, I mean, we see the historical contradiction. For example, um, in the Jerome internment camp in Arkansas, one of the two internment camps in Arkansas, these this is a camp that is functioning during World War II in the Jim Crow South. And the um, people in the Jerome camp, the internees, are allowed day passes where they can go into town and they can eat at restaurants and shop at shops, et cetera. And they are told, you know, when they're given the passes, do not associate with black people, do not go to the black part of town, stay in the white part of town. Um, So that's a very clear message being sent to them. And of course, that is both coercive and at the same time, a mark of privilege. They're allowed to sit in the white section of the bus, they're allowed to go to the white restaurant, right? So, um, or the, the white part of the restaurant. So um, we see the ways in which the Japanese, even as they're being incarcerated by the federal government, are at the same time being given these privileges relative to the regular black citizens of Arkansas, right? So
2: called insiders. Right? <laughs> so called
1: insiders. Thank you for bringing that up, Susan. Yes, the so called insiders. Um, so you have those living contradictions, and that's what, what I was trying to get at with the idea of the double nature of internment, because it was both a story of systemic, um, you know, abrogation of rights and persecution and hardship. And at the same time, a story of how there were certain limits on the hardship inflicted on Japanese Americans, right? And one of the ways I talk about this in the book is to juxtapose internment with lynching, right? Because once again, the violence of internment, although it was real and although lives were in fact destroyed and many, and no life was left unharmed, right, of a person who was interned or their, their families. But if we put that in relation to lynching, we can under, We can sort of see the um, through that relation the different limits on violence um, that are in play.
2: And you also note that uh, in hindsight, we're able to. Better imagine reparations for the incarceration of the Japanese, for the seizure of property, for taking businesses away, than we actually are for the uh, defiling of bodies and the uh, stealing of labor and the stealing of property in the case of Black Americans. And that's, that's beautifully done as well. The last part of the book is called Solidarity, Disavowal. And there you're looking at how Asian Americans, you know, developed uh, political ideas during uh, the Asian American sort of civil rights movement alongside black power. And, and you're trying to tease out, and I, I love that term that you keep using, living contradictions, of how it is that uh, Asian Americans are on the one hand denouncing white supremacy and trying to express solidarity, with Black Americans, but that you also find that there are limits there and uh, negotiations, and so I wonder if you could say just a little bit about about how that works and the extent to which Asian Americans end up implicated in the anti-black in, in anti-blackness that they think they're disavowing.
1: Well, the term that I use in the book is a half-finished critique. By which I mean that Asian American thinkers and activists in the 1960s, as the movement's getting started in California, um, are, as you said, um, brilliantly critiquing white supremacy and its impact throughout U.S. history in lifting up whites and pushing down all non-white groups. But they, what they don't address, and, and the term anti-blackness was not being used at this time. Um, France Fanon's idea of negrophobia was out there and being discussed, but the term anti-blackness is more has a more recent provenance. But they were not talking about the sort of singularity of anti-black persecution and anti-black violence. And um, because they missed that half of the picture, that's why I call it a half-finished critique, they emphasized, as did Black activists at the time, this third world solidarity framework, right? Which is, we still hear a lot of talk about today, meaning all of these communities of color standing in solidarity with one another in unity with one another, is united in their resistance to white supremacy, as if they all have a single common enemy. The difficulty is, as I mentioned throughout the book, that there are really at least two major forces at work one being white supremacy and one being anti-blackness. So anti-blackness, unlike white supremacy, is pushing down black people in particular and lifting up thereby other groups. So Asian Americans, indigenous people, Latinx folks, etc. for all of the persecution and violence they face um, are being lifted up at least in one way, which is by not being black. So to miss that part of the picture, Means that they were missing, right? The, the um, a more rounded uh, sense of what was going on. Not all Asian American thinkers missed it. There were a few, Amy Wumatsu and Alan Nishio, I'd mentioned, who were really moving in that direction with their thinking. But that was not, you know, what became sort of the party line coming out of the movement. And um, then I talk about for the rest of that third part how that half-finished critique has been a problem for Asian Americans because in Asian American thinking, in Asian American politics, there continues to be this sort of um, dodging of what I see as the central ethical political crisis for Asian America, which is how to um, conceive of itself and its claims and its own suffering in the context of a structurally anti-black society. And as long as one is focusing only on white supremacy and not on anti blackness, one does not need to face that crisis. And that is what I think the interpretive problem we're having repeatedly, for example, in the LA rebellion of 1992, or when in 2014, Peter, Officer Peter Liang shot a Kai Gurley in Brooklyn, or, um, you know, in the Harvard affirmative action case that the Supreme Court just ruled upon. So, in, in, instance after instance in the real world, in real political conflicts, we see um, the difficulty Asian Americans have in analyzing and responding to what's going on uh, because of this failure to address anti-blackness.
2: Well, and, and, and as you point out, the, the last part is the conclusion. I mean, there are great incentives to try to avoid anti-blackness uh, in the United States for all groups. And so, uh, you know, for Asian Americans, they're in this very particular, you're asking a lot in that what you want is for Asian Americans to understand that though they have been persecuted, though they are discriminated against, though they're being attacked, uh, you know, in the street for being Chinese, um, uh, nevertheless, their positionality is being weaponized to preserve this structural anti-blackness. And this requires, you're saying, a response from them and asking them, okay, what would be the political possibilities if we were to somehow try to refuse this, to to push away the model minority um, privilege that sometimes can come with claiming that and trying to have that white adjacency or, uh, or have having had a, uh, a history of discrimination. And so, you know, I think this is the, 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 the end of the book is very, very powerful in that you're trying to say, well, what would it, what would it look like if there was this kind of commitment to challenging anti-Blackness?
1: The, you mentioned earlier, I think you used the word complicity, and I would say the implicatedness of Asian Americans is very, very deep in the story of anti-Blackness in the US. And it's not because there's anything particular about Asian Americans that makes them you know, prone to this kind of behavior. It is the structural positioning of groups. And so every not-Black group has been positioned this way and has responded this way, right? So, I mean, it's a structural matter and that implicatedness is very deep so it's it's um it's on the one hand expecting a lot but on the other hand it's saying how do you stop being implicated right and that to stop being implicated um is a uh is a very tall order because of the implicatedness run so deep but i would also mention there are groups there are actually groups like asians for black lives and that's a relatively small group it's not a nationally known group necessarily, but there are for some activist formations which um, actually center the Black struggle, Asian uh, activist formations, which center the Black struggle in their work and talk about what it is to be Asian and how to fight anti-Asian racism in relation to the black struggle um so i wonder if there's a way to sort of take that kind of activism and broaden it out and you know think about how that can be expanded because there's there's not that much in common between that and the sort of mainstream asian american organizations which are really you know asian americans first that's their priority um and that's, of course, how the sort of NGO universe is set up. is um, It's organized, you know, to some extent by race, and um, people think about their their own group first. So um, it is a tall ask, but I do think it is one that sort of emerges organically out of looking at the historical record. Um, you
2: know, an American. Politics is organized along these groups of uh, ethnic groups, religious groups, racial groups, all sort of organized around defending themselves, and that's and that's treated as fairly legitimate in the United States. And focusing on your, 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 your own sorrow, your own story of oppression. I, I do think the way you opened the book was actually very helpful to me, or maybe it was helpful to me because I. I feel very similarly that there is something about the murder of George Floyd. There's something about uh, the number of people that poured into the streets during a pandemic that has maybe pushed all of us to think a little bit more about, oh, perhaps I've been too focused on my own struggle as mm-hmm. as a woman, uh, as the mother of a trans child, whatever identity one has to see that anti-Black uh, racism remains something that everybody, despite what they are suffering, you know, needs to focus on. Okay. This is such a complex book. I'm so thrilled that you wrote it and we've only been able to scratch the surface. Is, is there something that was particularly important to you that we, we haven't discussed that we should?
1: I think one point
2: I want to uh, make is
1: that there's concern among readers or, you know, potential potential readers, as I was writing the book, would, would mention this to me. And I think this concern will be felt by some readers that um, in anticipation of reading the book, maybe even after reading the book, that it somehow undermines the possibility of coalitional work or interracial solidarity. Uh, and I think one of the reasons a book like this hasn't been written to this point is precisely out of fear of that, of either of actually doing that undermining or being seen as doing that undermining. So I think this is something that needs to actually be addressed directly. And on this point, I would say, I, as a student of politics and of racial coalitions, I don't think they've been terribly successful. Um, I think we give, you know, people on the left, people who are in ethnic studies, racial activist circles, Talk a lot about racial solidarity in the face of white supremacy, but there's not as much cooperation and solidaristic action as you would hope. And I think part of the reason for that is that there are these discrepant, uneven experiences and statuses among these groups that are not being addressed. We sort of have this fantasy, right, that we're all in the third world together. And because we're smoothing over all those differences and erasing all those differences, we can't get to honest, an honest reckoning of U.S. history. And whether we mean to or not, we are um, erasing or obscuring the history of slavery. And we know, you know, from watching the right wing right now, from watching people who stormed the Capitol uh, on January 6th, that we know how much the erasure of slavery, the reality of slavery, is important to these people, to you know, create a certain idea of America in their heads and um, how important it is to them, what a priority it is to them to make sure American students don't learn about the reality of slavery. Hence the ban on so-called critical race theory, et cetera. So, and, you know, we know from looking at fascist regimes in other parts of the world, this is part of what fascism is, is sort of you go into the textbooks and you whitewash what actually happened and you put a very, um, you know, patriotic, quote unquote patriotic story in there, triumphalist story that makes the nation look good. So that battle is going on at a very grand scale. And um, I think part of, as part of our effort to resist fascism, in the US and part of our effort to resist what was happening on January 6th, we have to say, we need to get serious about teaching students about slavery. There is no more time, there never was time, but there's really no more time to be dancing around about this. They need a serious education in slavery and all will follow from that, um, from a real education. Now whether we can ever get there is you know, a question of political power and that's a different story. But I don't want to write a book that's participating in that erasure. I want to write a book that says many of the things we think we're doing that are well intended might be might be contributing to that erasure. And we really are better served, right? Um, In terms of coalition, in terms of all kinds of political action going forward, we are better served by knowing what the truth is and talking about that and dealing with it. Because guess what? We still have common interests. We still have common enemies. That doesn't go away. But being able to talk honestly about different positionalities, different degrees of power and status, I think that's vital to be able to have an honest uh, working kind of coalitional relationship. Well, and
2: it's funny because, you know there's two things that have to happen people need an education about what has actually happened in the United States that and they don't have very much information about slavery I just taught uh, uh, Plessy v Ferguson yesterday and out of 40 students in two different classes nobody knew anything about reconstruction they had no idea they had no they had no reference for it uh, one person came up with that it was the era of do-nothing presidents. But that, that which is, that's interesting in, in many ways. So it, it, there's two things that have to happen. One, there's just a lot of information that people have to have to make sense of the things that they read. You can't read Brown versus Board of Education without understanding Plessy, without understanding Reconstruction. But also they need goals. And I think one of the sort of brilliant aspects of this book is that I actually read it the opposite of some of the people who are reading this. I saw it as it being a book about like solidarity, like one that was saying, here's the goal. The goal is for all of us to look. I mean, your examples obviously here are are about Asian Americans, but I really was imagining in my head a very similar book that was thinking about – the persecution of jewish americans in the united states latinx i mean i, I, mean, I was sort of writing many versions of this and it, it made me think about the need for those kinds of alliances so i think in the end I, I don't think this book ends up being about taking away that as a goal but maybe opening it up and creating the pathway to it because I, one thing i find in my students is that they want this information desperately right now something has happened uh, I've been at the school for 20 years. I've never seen anything like the thirst for information. But they also want a goal. And they want there to be this idea that perhaps there can be a more perfect union, perhaps there can be something that they would feel good about supporting. And I think that, you know, your last chapter is sort of opening up what that, you know, would look like. So it's, it's, um, it's a great accomplishment. I, I really, I enjoyed reading it too. It's, it's, it's kind of a page turner, um, in that which I don't say about many very, you know, detailed, nuanced, rigorously researched um, uh, political history, legal histories. So thank you for for writing the book. Uh, what what is your next project? I, I know that you you should just be able to to be relaxed about this, but is there something else that you're working on that you're willing to share?
1: I think the next project will be something on eco-fascism. Um, I'm more and more interested in um, the question of fascism for obvious reasons. And then um, I want to bring in my um, concerns, my ethical concerns about animals and nature, which I've written about before um, by, you know, and I can bring that all together by looking at ecofascist ideology, eco-fascist activism. So I think that's where I'm going, but who knows? It to could change tomorrow.
2: Well, that's good. Uh, it's good when it's good when we're reacting to things that have contemporary significance. Um, Claire, thank you so much uh, for joining New Books in Political Science. We've been talking with Dr. Claire Jean Kim about Asian Americans in an Anti-Black World, published by Cambridge University Press in 2023. Thanks so much, Claire.
1: Thank you so much, Susan. Appreciate it.